What qualifications do you need to have to be a property forecaster? Well, at a minimum, it seems you need an economics degree and a job with one of the big four banks. But given their track record of getting it wrong way more often than they get it right, it makes me wonder whether they really know what drives property prices up or down in this country. Surely there must be factors that they're not aware of, or perhaps they're just disregarding them. Today, we want to explore the problems with forecasting, specifically when economists forecast without really understanding the dynamics of the property market. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're joined by Louis Christopher, one of Australia's best-known property researchers. Louis established SQM Research in 2006. Before that, he was the head of research and general manager of the property statistics agency, Australian Property Monitors, APM, where he constructed key residential property market indices published by the Reserve Bank of Australia. Now, Louis is widely respected for the quality and accuracy of his market outlooks. And I think we did... Overlook him actually last year in the Fuller Forecaster Report, but don't you worry, we'll get him back in next year's one. And the thing is with Louis, it's been quite a while since we chatted, but he's absolutely a property person, okay? Now, the last time we did discuss uh, things on the podcast with Louis was back in episode 102, which is a bit embarrassing. That's before COVID. So we should not leave it that long again. And what prompted me to reach out to him this time was a post that he made a couple of months back on LinkedIn about FACE by NAB economists about the property market. And I quote, disclosure, NAB initially had a housing price forecast of an 11% decline for this year, which was revised to a 4% decline, which was revised to a 2.2% decline, which has now been revised to a 6.9% increase. Looks like they're going to be spot on. Well, we love a bit of sarcasm. Thanks so much for joining us again, Louis. What prompted you to write this post? Uh, Thanks for the nice uh, words, Veronica. Good to be with you once again. And Chris, well, look, I, as you know, and as you've stated, I've, I've been covering the market for many years now, and I just, what gets under my skin from time to time is you see these forecasts that come out, and look, nobody knows the future, and that's fine, but there's no um, disclosure that this is a revised forecast, uh, and why did they revise the forecast? It's nothing. It's like as though it's a brand speaking new forecast. <laughs> now, some media outlets do put in the note that, hey, on, this is actually a revision such as a financial review, but often you will see on sites such as News Limited and other mastheads, they just treat it as though it's a new forecast. And it just gets a bit sickening when you're through the better part of the year and they come out with a forecast, which coincidentally, it's how we're currently tracked. <laughs> it's so interesting. Louis, we did the, um, Veronica and I in the last one, it was the banks, wasn't it, right? Um and I was the one putting the numbers together. And I, so I was the one going back and looking at all of their, um, and they all, some you can get access to. ANZ, they're really hard to get access to, but NAB, um, I think CBA was really quite easy as well, um, um, et cetera, and Westpac. So 
but you're right like every quarter they release them and they completely flip um in a dime and to be honest they all moved in a very similar sink um so they're almost like uh oh westpac's changed and then anz would change and i guess what's frustrating for for me as well is similar to you is that the news outlets just jump on it um and not channel nine or do a thing on that night and health prices are going up and you know and a lot of people do unfortunately fall for this and they they just sort of take you know so what's your sort of What's your sort of take on, you know, the banks and, you know, is one better than the other or are they all just as bad as each other at these and they all are just making you know, big forecasts without much behind it? Yeah, good, good questions, Chris. Uh, look, certainly over the past two years, they seem to be very much in align with each other, both in terms of what the forecast is, then the revision, as well as the timing of the revisions. They all appear to be coming at the same time. It's like as though they're they get around a round table and try to work it out between each other. It's like, oh, we got it wrong last year. Okay, what are we? Let's put in this number. This should, this should do the job. Let's keep in mind too, the banks in particular are one of the country's largest advertisers. So they always get a good run, always get a good run by our major mastheads. And I think because of that, mind you, I'm a bit of a skeptical person, but I think that's, I think that's fair comment in my view. But importantly, why do they get it wrong? Uh, now, let's let's face it, forecasting the future is extraordinarily difficult uh, and we don't always get it right. So why are the banks not terribly good at forecasting? Well, over the past 12 months, one thing I've noticed with each of the banks is that they appear to have completely underestimated the impact upon migration or the impact of migration uh, upon housing price forecasts. And to me, I... I we could see this coming for some time because it was reported in the budget forecast in terms of the migration numbers. Back in 2021, we were already having a rental crisis and we were seeing big uplifts in rents at that time, advertised rents. Um, and over and above that, we knew historically that there was a positive relationship between higher inflation and housing prices particularly if we wind ourselves all the way back to the 1970s, where, for example, in that decade, Sydney house prices quadrupled, quadrupled. And at the same time, inflation at one point was actually up to 17.5%. So there's a strong relationship there. And it appears as though they did not seem to get that relationship. With the migration, I've often wondered about this because it's a bit of a delayed reaction um, in terms of property prices or participation in the property market from migrants, right? So they don't all come here and immediately buy. But if we've got a rental shortage, I guess, am I putting words in your mouth by saying, well, if there's already a rental shortage, you're sort of forced to consider buying a lot faster than they perhaps would have been otherwise in a normal type of environment? Would that be fair to say? Uh, I believe so, Veronica. Uh, the fact that when we opened up uh, the borders, we are already having rental vacancy rates well under 2%. Uh, and so uh, as a, a new arrival to this country, what do you do? And, it's, and, and also let's consider too, many new arrivals have cash to spend. They're coming into country with cash. And the first order of the day is you've got to work out your, your shelter. Uh, and so if the rental market's that tight, the inclination then is to go and buy it if you can, and many have. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that's something which I think the banks completely didn't see coming at all. I think it's also that rental crisis thing is, 
not just for people moving to the country it's people who are living here right there there's a real apprehension of renting again they're getting kicked out of their current place they can see the rents are going up that the rental stress is forcing them to buy um even you know just on the phone today with a client you know wants to buy an apartment in sydney for his kids because he knows his kids have got a a rental issue uh, we're convincing him out of it in this situation um but you know there is that that rental pressure encourages people to buy even though rates are higher but also their rents are going up so i think that's a you know i mean there's not just the banks who have been very bearish you know chris joy's um come out with you know 15 25 declines and, and hasn't changed his forecast to be honest <laughs> what else do you think that these people have um you know because we can't say it's wrong yet because this thing hasn't played out completely but um what other things i mean migration's one but what are the other things that you know the psychology behind the market the people are like oh rates are going up house prices should massively fall like where are people because that's what a lot of people have thought um I, I think that this goes back to the inflation question so yes rates did go up uh and in a normal inflationary environment the, the magnitude of those increases would have created a correction. And we did have a correction in 2022. But what you've got to look at uh, when it comes to these things is what we call real interest rates. So the, the actual interest rate after you take into account inflation. And right up through to this year, and right now we've been running what's called a real negative interest rate. So in other words, the inflation rate's running ahead of the current interest rate. That means that borrowed money is, is devaluing in real terms. And that creates the incentive for people to go out there and hedge against that higher inflationary environment. And on the ground, we've just spoken about rents. So you know, those costs going up, and that encourages first-home buyers to get out of the rental market, to buy into the, the actual um, real estate market. And it's been encouraging investors as well. I must say, though, recently investors, I think, are getting a little bit spooked by all the talk about rental caps and so forth. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they've been jumping in that market to get that hedge against inflation ultimately. And it, like, so I think that's another great point, right? And, you know, if you've got a million dollars of debt today, but inflation's going at, you know, six, seven percent, that's not a million dollars of debt next year, right? Well, well, that's right. I mean, okay, if your average lending rate's been running at, say, you know, in the high fives uh, as a first-time buyer, but you know, at one point in time we were having inflation running at eight. Well, you're actually your debt's devaluing. Mm. Um, assuming there's you know enough wage increases within the system, I guess that also matters, right? Like if if we're getting wage growth to out of take on mortgages to you know because that offsets inflation, right? If your costs are going up, your wages aren't. Well, well, Chris, this is a very good question. Everyone does focus on the overall average wage increase, which runs at the moment, it's running just a bit over 3%. Um, what we like to look at here at SQN Research is nominal GDP, so total income coming into the country, which is a representational, not just wages, but small business profits, superannuation increases, the whole bots and dice, rents the whole lot, right? And particularly rents, that's a critical one because we know what's happened to rents. Now, not many people are aware of this, but nominal GDP, so total income, has been actually running in the double digits. It's been running at up 13% per annum. And a long time ago, we knew that there was a very strong relationship between, once again, housing prices and nominal GDP representing total incomes. 
So when nominal GDP is running at 13%, uh, yeah, that's, that's a number not to be sneezed at. This is so interesting because, you know, people will be talking and, and, and it's logical. Well, costs are going up, inflation's got, you know, cost of living, uh, the debt's costing more because of interest rates, you know, forgetting the real cost of in, real interest rates. But, you know, in terms of our hip pockets, we're all hurting, et cetera, et cetera. Fuel's going up, et cetera, et cetera. And so our housing prices, despite the fact we're something like 40% down on borrowing capacity, and how can that be? And I think what you've done is sort of go partway to answering how that can be is because the people actually buying property aren't necessarily hamstrung by one wage, by earning the normal wage. That, that's right. It's, it's a combination of um, receiving income from elsewhere. So uh, people who have been earning rental income, a rise in small business income, plus the surge in the population. So in the last 12 months, the population has surged by half a million people. And now those half a million people need about 240,000 dwellings. Where are they going to get it from? The rental market? No, they're, they're buying in the market. Um, and so I think the combination of the two um, are some of the reasons why we believe our forecasts that we put out November last year are very likely to come in. And when I read the banks' forecasts, each of the majors, they, they not at any point did they make mention of strong migration numbers or higher inflation impacting upon property prices. What about, um, I mean, you're the holy grail of listing data, right? Um, whenever I, you know, you can look at the core logic numbers, right, which is great, and you can sort of, you know, but, you know, if you want to go in a local area, which is all that matters in property, right, it's all about local markets versus the market. Um, and, you know, it, it's one thing, I think it's one thing you can take around property, it's it's understanding that, it's, it's knowing that what really matters is where you're buying, where you're owning, uh, where you're looking to buy. And um, your data is amazing, right, with your listing data. How do you think listings have... Because that's obviously another thing that the banks wouldn't have really forecast. They didn't. They didn't see this. That's right. In, in our forecast, we do look at the leading indicators, such as stock and market, auction clearance rates. Uh, and yeah, very good point, Chris, about the listings. This is the one thing that um, I don't think too many picked up on in the 2022 downturn, was that we didn't really see any major surge in listings over the course of that year. So in normal downturns, you see a rise in listings. And it's generally a big rise in older stock, stock that's just simply not selling out there and it's building up. We didn't really, we did get a little bit of a rise, but not the normal rise we get in any standard downturn. It was actually pretty minute. And I noticed at the end of last year, it looked like as though the listings, total listings had peaked and were starting to trend down again. And that was a bit of an indicator for me too, that, okay, you know what? 2023 could be a stronger the year. And yes, so far this year, it, it, the, the truth is that listings have been hovering to about national and wide at any point in time, about 220 to 230,000 listings. And any type of normal downturn you get, you, you see listings cross over 300,000. Uh, so the numbers are well and truly down. And that means, of course, that overall, we're not seeing a flood of properties in the marketplace, which would normally create that fall in housing prices. 
So there's a combination there. So let's just sort of clarify what we mean by listings here, because I love your chart, of particularly when it breaks it down to 30-day chunks. And you can absolutely very, very clearly see those longer, uh, the days on market for those, that sort of dead stock, if you like, that's been building, building, building. And in a hot market, you know, people compete for all sorts of garbage with property because FOMO drives everything. But in a slow market, they'll leave that stuff that they wouldn't, you know, that it's really not great property. And so when you've got list, when you're looking at total listings numbers, you're looking at sort of what's swelling or what's staying on the market and taking time to sell as well as what's coming on the market in terms of new listings. And of course, new listings has been, it's only recently started picking up. It's been trending below the five year average for some time. So you've got less new stock coming into the market that pushes buyers into buying some of the older stock as well because you've got less to choose uh, from. So as demand increases, you start to see that old stock be picked up. Anecdotally, we saw that happening in uh, in Sydney, uh, you know, got back after Christmas holidays and we saw sold stickers on properties that have been sitting on the market they were a bit stale and went, oh, okay, this is interesting. That says to me we're having a change, you know. Um, and so, and that's the sort of the, the nuance, I guess, that, that we're talking about here when we're talking about listings data and particularly your listings data shows that very clearly, uh, in your, in your charts. So what are you, you know, I'm surprised that the banks don't take that into account because it's like, it seems to be just 101. Um. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're going to look at, okay, the expertise behind the bank. So you get a lot of chief economists who are putting out these forecasts. And I've been a bit cheeky a long time ago. I, I used to say chief economists or economists are like the, the GPs of the medical world. They're, they're good at things, generally speaking, but they're not specialists. Um, and, and I think uh, in this space in housing, there is a lot of factors you really do need to take into account you need to get down to the micro level from the ground up. You've got to do what they call bottom-up research in, in housing. And I don't think they have time to do it. Uh, I think, you know, they're looking at so many different variables and housing is just one. You know, they're trying to do a forecast on wages. They're trying to do a forecast on GDP. They're trying to do a forecast on unemployment and on interest rates, of course. And then it comes to housing. And I just have this view that I don't know whether they have enough time to really dig into all the factors that that do influence housing prices. Oh, it's such a good point. I mean, I think that um, I came from a financial advice background into property. You know, you start to see it as an investment and an asset and the yield and the growth and, um, you know, the advice. Anyone in the money markets as well, they really struggle around resi, you know, like what's it really worth? Like that's not worth that because of the yield or the growth rate. And it's it's also because we live in the properties, right? Like it's it's a lot of it's driven by you know, the lifestyle benefit of certain assets. And it might not make great investment sense, but people still go and buy it and push prices up because there's a lifestyle need. It's funny you should say say that, Chris, and you're, you're absolutely spot on there. There is that emotional aspect you have with housing that you don't really get with other asset classes. But on the, on the performance metrics, one of the things I don't think people are aware of, okay, especially if you're taking into account long-term performance of housing, you can look at housing as like the total asset class and you'll find that housing returns have been coming in at somewhere long to around 7 to 9% per annum. Okay. But what that doesn't take into account is a, is a gearing in housing, which of course can be a double-edged sword. You've got to be careful. But if you look at what we call your return on equity, your return and your deposit that you've made, well, housing kills it. It absolutely kills it. That return on equity number can be often 40 to 50%. 
you know, it's a very, very strong number. It is because of leverage, of course. When you're you're geared to say 90% on an asset and it's running your way, happy days. It's funny you you bring that up. We did a and a episode uh, probably about a month or so back and, and we tackled a question around how to measure performance of a property and exactly we were talking about exactly those sorts of things that, you know, you can't really judge it on the total asset value when you purchased it because it, you're not actually spending that amount of money. Most of us aren't anyway. We're actually just paying a deposit and we're then uh, – putting usually some cash flow in to, to support that or to continue making that investment. So the ROI really needs to be on that rather than, you know, the total value of the property when you purchased. But the other thing that you'd sort of touched on about, you know, bottom-up research, I mean, that says to me that that's really understanding, you know, really local market dynamics and also in a way individual behaviour of buyers. And and this is the thing that I think that is missed by a lot of property data experts anyway, a, a lack of recognition that human beings are responding in some way to market forces, to their own desires, their own needs, there's, uh, our own behavioural bias, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into the way in which human beings behave in the property market. You know, it's bricks and mortars, one thing, but it's actually not. It's it's all about human beings. And, and I think that understanding of how humans respond is what's needed to put some insight, true insight into the numbers. And the numbers are reflecting, um, you know, the numbers in terms of what has happened is reflecting what human beings have been doing and then forecasting needs to sort of predict what they're going to do in the future. And I particularly remember back in COVID, and of course we talked to you before COVID, so it wasn't even part of the discussion, but all the banks at that time were coming out, you know, doom and gloom forecasting sort of 30% price falls and all the rest of it. And I'm and I'm thinking, and I'm glad I said it on the podcast because I was like, Actually, when we've all been locked in our houses for, you know, a few months and, and we're not happy with it or we want more space and all this sort of stuff, we're going to come out of the gates like greyhounds chasing a rabbit. We are going to be dying to get out there and transact property. And what happened? Exactly that. So that's – but that's because I'm thinking, what does a human being do under these circumstances, whereas I'm presuming the bank economists were looking at, well, if the economy is going to do this, we're going to go on a recession, well, that's going to have a knock-on effect to prices. Of course, you know, they're, they're coming at it from top down versus bottom up. So I think that that's a really interesting perspective. Well, I think you're right, Veronica, about that emotional, psychological aspect. And yes, uh, everyone did want to sort of get out of the gates following COVID, but we've also got to thank the government at the time uh, for just spending a lot of money uh, in saving the economy. And, and we were concerned, just being upfront with you, that on the outset of COVID, and you may recall there was a collapse in option clearance rates um, in those first opening months of, of COVID, the picture didn't look good. Uh, but it, it was the government throwing money at the economy to keep it going. And I'm still sure without that money, if the government was silly enough not to stimulate the economy, we would have had a very, very dark recession. I've forgotten it about that. It would that. have been very bleak. <laughs> so, I mean, the recession, it's, we'll go and talk about your forecast. I think they're very interesting, which we'll, you know, we'll share screen shares. But, Recession and, and property, like what's your sort of take? Like if a recession, the, you know, then governments have to inflate, right? You know, there's jobs, there's people, there's votes that they need to care about, right? Um, So, you know, and that usually relates to, you know, decreases in sort of interest rates, right? To to support the economy. It, it does, but you've got, to, you've got to be careful because when once confidence goes in the economy, it, it can go for a long time. You know, you good people look like you're about as old as me, maybe just a bit younger. 
So you'll recall what happened back in 1990. Yes, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> so let, let's wind ourselves back to the year 1990, where sure enough, option clearance rates collapsed when we hit a cash rate of 17.5%, and home lending rates are running at nearly 20%. Uh, that killed the economy. Now, sure enough, interest rates were cut, but it took a long time for the economy to respond. If you recall, we weren't really out of the recession until about 1993. Okay, so 1991 was a bad year, but they were cutting rates in 91. 1992 was still a bad year. They were cutting rates again. And it wasn't until 93 that, okay, finally the economy responded and confidence picked up. So this is the thing we need to be careful with, with the economy, that, okay, if you really smash confidence it can take some time for it to come back. But what happened to property prices in that time? Very good question. Depends on the city, of course. Melbourne got smashed. You recall there was a, there was a lot of problems, and you may recall uh, building societies going under and so forth. Sydney did better than expected. So in nominal terms, Sydney actually still advanced. In real terms, because inflation was still running pretty hard, it was, uh, it was actually uh, falling backwards a bit. Uh, so it, it was a mixed situation depending on the city, but it wasn't an outright crash, as you as you rightly point. Even though we had unemployment at one point in time at ten percent, but I've got to say, Melbourne, a very large city, that city did get hit hard. So let's um let's bring up your twenty twenty three forecast, if you don't mind, um, and we can start to. If you are watching on YouTube, you can play along with us, but we'll, we'll talk it through as well. No problem. I'll just... Uh, and while Louis's setting up, we've never done this before, so good on you, Louis, for being the guinea pig. <laughs> Can you the, see the screen? It's coming up. It's coming up. The three dots. Here we go. Yes. Okay. So um, for those who are familiar with our forecasts, uh, people would be aware that we like to put out scenarios. So I'm a, I'm a housing analyst. I'm not an expert in where interest rates are going to be. 12 months from now, I don't know where they're going to be. I know what the market's betting on, but I don't know personally where they're going to be. Uh, and I certainly cannot forecast uh, COVID and so forth, right? It, it, these things are very difficult to forecast. But what I can do as a housing analyst is say, all right, well, if you tell me interest rates are going to be at this level, I'll tell you what that means for the housing market. Assuming inflation is doing this and unemployment is doing that. And so that's how we like to go about it. Uh, and one thing I like about this is it means that we don't have to continually put out revisions. We just put out one thing before the year starts and we live and die by this. Um, and if we get it right, we get it right. Happy days. And if we don't, we don't. And we don't always certainly get it right. 2018, we got that year wrong. That was a year where we believe the housing market fell, if you recall. Um, and we believed that the housing market would slow down but not fall. So we clearly got that year wrong. But other years we've generally got it, we've done okay. And, and for this year, our base case forecast, which we put out in November 2022, um, is looking pretty good. So the overall forecast was that housing prices would rise 3 to 7%, okay, driven by rises in Sydney. So Sydney would lead the way followed by Perth. These were the two cities that we believe would derive the recovery for 2023. And I think when we consider the data that we've got, whether it comes from CoreLogic, ourselves, Domain, 
I think uh, I, in all three instances, it's showing Sydney is, is leading the recovery. Which we now can see in the actual data as well in terms of the real data. Louis, can you take us through how you put together these forecasts and these scenarios? And I think this is important. We, we did interview Shane Oliver some years back as well, and he sort of talked about scenarios, but he's also talking about revising. Um, and, and that seems to be the bank way that they'll put out one, you know, one forecast. They're not sharing their scenarios in this way. And if you remember, we did discuss with you, I'm sure you remember this, it was back in 2018, there was that 60 minutes story that everyone was raving about. Oh, the one, I can't about. a 60 minutes story. <laughs> and Martin North was also featured on that 60 minute and both of you submitted various scenarios to them and, of course, they, they latched on to the worst case one and so that was the uh, doom and And they treated that as though that was our base case. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, you know, notwithstanding Martin, I like Martin, but he can be a bit of a bear from time to time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually going to be on tonight with with Martin on on his show. He he has a reputation of being a bear. He definitely does. Um, so, but so by sharing this, um, you know, I, I think this is great because it's much more transparent, right? And and what you're doing is, I guess, lifting a little little bit to say, well, these are the inputs, um, and this is the type of um, I guess this is what can happen if those inputs change. So. What what do, how do you determine what the inputs are, and is it the same inputs all the time? No. Um, so normally, what I do so we we normally release our forecasts in either the last week of November or the first week of December um, of the current year for the forthcoming year. So when we release our twenty twenty four forecasts, I'll, they'll be coming out uh, in a, in about two and a half months from now. Um, and we just I'm just starting to put the scenarios together as we speak. And what I normally do is I is that I consider up to twenty different scenarios that housing prices could play out, and then it's a process of elimination until I get to four scenarios which I think are the most likely to play out. So for this year, our four scenarios were uh, first one, what we called rates on hold, which was that the cash rate would not breach 4%. It has just breached 4%, but it looks like we're now on pause. Scenario two, which was our Goldilocks scenario, which was a cash rate wouldn't breach 4%, and then we'd see rate cuts at, towards the end of this year. Most likely, I don't think we're going to see rate cuts now. Scenario three um, is our false dawn scenario, where the cash rate was going to go on pause and then potentially start rising again. And it looked like we were getting that and we still could get that. But based on the recent language from the Reserve Bank, it's looking like a, a, a bit of a, a, a better bet they'll now stay on hold at 4.1%. And then our more bleaker scenario was this sort of like stagflation, recessionary inflation, where we see inflation stay above 7%. Interest rates continue to rise well above 4%. And you start seeing unemployment rise over 6%. And that was a bit of a bearish scenario where we have this stagflation situation. Um, and fortunately, it doesn't look like that's playing out. Uh, so for where we stand right now, um, it's, it's looking most likely our base case scenario comes in, except that we've got a little bit wrong in terms of that cash rate peaking at 4%. We'll say it's going to peak at 41 um, we were concerned about a month ago about this false dawn scenario. Still watching it, 
uh, in the form of uh, uh, some falls were noted in auction clearance rates of late. But overall, we know housing prices are still rising as we speak. So it's looking like our base case is most likely going to come in if you uh, forgive me a little for getting the cash rate slightly off. I mean, going into um, the sort of 2024, is there any gut feeling of, is it, if you got similar sort of scenarios building in your head, like if rates stay on hold through 2024, we're thinking this, if rates get cut significantly or there's talk of rates, like, or do you think there's going to be another false dawn? What are you thinking? I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Like I said, we're just, I'm just starting to put together the, the scenarios now. And I, I think there needs to be a scenario there where we consider a rate cut uh, for next year. Uh, there is a chance here that the economy could now see very low inflation for 2024. Um, and therefore, we need to consider how the Reserve Bank would respond to that situation. We cannot, at this stage, rule out a recession as well, though it's looking increasingly likely we're having a soft landing. Um, but we just need to be aware of you know, lags in the data, uh, and I'm well aware, of course, of the precipitous falls we've had in consumer confidence. Uh, we're talking about consumer confidence falling to recessionary levels, literally back to 1990 levels, which concerns me. Uh, and we know that there can be a lag in the data in terms of retail spend and, of course, GDP and unemployment. We may well still see towards the end of this year further rises in unemployment where we crack at least 4%. That's quite possible. And what would that mean for housing prices in 2024? So. There's, there's various things we need to consider. The other factor that's running through my head at the moment is China. So China has a major meltdown like the Asian financial crisis of 1997. That could impact the world economy and impact where interest rates would be, unemployment would be, and therefore housing prices. So there's a lot of factors there um, that we're just touching on now that will take a fair degree of research before we put out our forecasts out in November. But yeah, they're just some of the things to consider. And of course, you've got the X factors that may well play out. What happens with the Ukraine war? Could that impact upon the economy? Well, you wouldn't rule it out. Uh, of course, part of the reason why we've had a rise in inflation was a surge in food prices. Uh, and Ukraine, of course, is a huge grain belt for the world. Uh, it's a huge food basin. So if that plays out, I mean, it's been playing out badly, but if it gets worse, that could impact upon food prices and stoke inflation once more. Louis, is there any sort of other leading, I mean, I can think about 
obviously credit growth where we are we can see you know when uh, by urgency by appetite you know uh, changes you know people's attitudes towards debt i guess um i mean do you look at sort of leading indicators there do you sort of i mean like the building issues like you know that played out into the market as well people didn't have the confidence to go and you know buy off the plan or do a build so that meant they had to go into the established market so that was another factor why i think prices are, are more resilient what, what's some other leading indicators you look at absolutely shortage of uh, dwellings is a key factor right now as well as the ongoing popular expansion and population growth rate we know uh that uh, hang on, I'll just stop sharing the screen. There we go. Um, we know uh, that it's very likely the popula population will expand again by some half a million people for 2024, unless the federal government puts caps on migration, which that's just a subject they do not wish to talk about. Um, we also know when we look at the building commencements, which are delivered uh, or reported on by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, we're set to build over the next 12 months about 160,000 dwellings. That is likely means those two numbers are correct. We grow by half a million people, just like what we did this year, um, and we only build 160,000 dwellings. That means the rental crisis rolls on and rents keep rising. And how will they, people respond to that environment? Will they buy a home to get out of the rental market? I'd say they will. That all said, though, if we have a recession where we see a spike in unemployment, people will not have the ability to buy a home. Hmm. Well, for the 92 or 94 or 96% of people that are still employed, I guess they potentially can, but the, the, two, the, the 4 to 8% that are unemployed, they potentially can't. Is that They can't. That's right. And the, the, the risk is, okay, with those people who cannot, let's say we see a worst-case scenario where you get unemployment hit up to... 1990 levels, which I think is very unlikely. But let's say you had an a, a unemployment rate of 10%. Do you think in that environment we would see an increase in full selling activity? Uh, I would argue we would. And it's something we actually monitor very closely and something we haven't talked about today is the fixed rate mortgage resets, um, which I think many people have actually overestimated the impact upon the housing market and how people are going to deal with mortgage stress. Uh, We've noted, and we we wanted to distress listings activity a lot. There's actually been falls in distress selling activity over the course of 2023, not rises. It's been going the other direction. So this concern about false selling activity hasn't materialised as yet. I think in an environment where you were to get, say, unemployment of 10%, you would probably see it at that point. But if we to, we are to manage a soft landing and have unemployment hit no more than 5%, that I think we won't see a lot of forced selling activity in the marketplace. Do you think that 2024 is a real going to be, I mean, I'm sort of like trying to get myself in the mind of you in November, right? Um, and, you know, if rates stay high, right, um, and you may start, I do think there's going to be some debt stress start to build, right? If, if RBA stays over 4%, you know, people are going to have to, they get their bank holiday for six months, they run out of buffers, the bank can't keep kicking the down can down the road forever, right? Um, but even if listings increase, do you think there's this just I know you said migration's a big demand for housing, which absolutely is, but there's also pent up demand, right? There's the couple that are in the apartment that want a house. There's the the first home buyer that's been trying to buy for the last twelve months but can't because they just can't find a good asset. So there's this growing pool of pent up demand that 
that even if we get this increase in listings, which everyone's hoping for, to be honest, there's enough pent up demand with migration and, you know, people that just haven't got the right housing or, you know, that, that suits their needs. Well, yes, Chris. So, and, and, and this is one of the primary reasons as we've discussed why the banks got 2023 completely wrong. They completely underestimate the impact upon migration and that underlying demand and that pent-up demand you speak of. But I do believe, too, that there are limits to it. Um, and if you, know, if you had a, a recession, a deep recession in this country, do we think we'd see a massive surge in migration? Would the government step in and finally put caps on migration? What would they do in that scenario? Certainly there'd be a lot of pressure upon the federal government to do something about the migration numbers if unemployment's spiking. Um, and, and what would that mean then for the housing market? Uh, so we, we, just, we just need to consider that, look, you know, those darker scenarios, I would suggest are unlikely at this point in time, but we cannot, we cannot entirely rule them out because of the rises in the interest rates and the, and the data lag and the, and the big falls in consumer confidence that we have indeed had. On that, on the consumer confidence, what sort of interests me is that um, it seems to be in some cases, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but I was listening to the CBA's um, economics uh, podcast, and there were there were times in, in in months, probably towards the end of last year, when interest rates were rising, but consumer confidence wasn't as negative as one would have ex expected at the time, and I'm just wondering. Uh, is consumer confidence sort of following the same patterns that we might have previously seen, or is does our sort of shorter news cycle um, have more of a reactive influence, or, or is is consumer confidence more reactive and more volatile in recent times? I mean, you've been looking at it for a long time, so is there any change, or is it the same as always? That's a really good question, Veronica. I would say consumer confidence, remembering the series as I do it, it has become more choppy. Uh, I think that's fair. But the, 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 the major decline we've had now, we haven't had that since 1990. That's what concerns me. So it's reached these new levels we've never seen before over the past 30 years. Uh, and consumer confidence is normally the first thing that goes in a downturn. Hence why I'm, I'm watching it very carefully. I'm sure the Reserve Bank of Australia is watching it very carefully as well. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, I take your point about the 24-hour media cycle, keeping in mind the media always seems to be negative. That's how they make money. Um, you know, so yeah, it, 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 it's an interesting one. And certainly we didn't have this cycle back in 1990. Everything's completely changed from then media-wise and technology-wise. Do you think that consumer confidence being pretty low now is not a bad thing, though? Do you think that, you know, if we were quite confident, we'd be spending more money, which would obviously be kicking the can down the road and we'd have more stubborn inflation? So, if anything, it's a good sign that we are that. And I, we can absolutely see it. I mean, CBA produced some data last week that was actually really interesting. It had, like, um, you know, spending under 30. You know, they were there going out, still spending money, right? If you haven't got a big mortgage, you're still going out. You're still going to cafes, restaurants, nightclubs, et cetera. You're still travelling. You know, spending over 50, 60, they're still spending money, but it's the, the the mortgage belt that have really made cutbacks. And, you know, that's our client. And we can absolutely see that. The, there's a fear around rates, there's cutbacks. But, you know, if if consumer confidence does, does it bounce back? Like, you know, you said it sticks around for a long time, but if we honestly do believe that the inflation genie's back in the bottle, right? And the 
the conversation shifts in four or five months that RBA isn't going up anymore. The conversation is that is it going to go down and when it's going to go down and will buyers all of a sudden become much more positive and will you know about the economy um, because there's a talk of rate cuts and will that very quickly get factored into prices because you don't like you don't have to see the rate cuts to say I'm gonna you almost bet on that you start buying and you spending knowing that 2024 2025 these rate cuts are coming on very low listings and so can you can you envisage that world where confidence increases the the likelihood of rate rises almost vanishes and rate cuts are coming and buyers then act accordingly yes consumer confidence could increase again if rate cuts are on the horizon let's keep in mind though that we've had now some data come out since the pause in the cash rate and consumer confidence fell again it fell despite the pause why did it fall despite the pause in rates could it be that people are getting more and more squeezed and spending is getting cut further and further and that the existing cash rate is really doing its job and and could it be that okay even if you have say rate cuts uh, on the horizon but we're getting a spike in unemployment now uh, that consumer confidence could fall further based on that spike in unemployment I don't know about you guys but I'm increasingly meeting more and more people this is just very anecdotal who are doing it very very tough very 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 tough uh, sadly I know a fellow had a heart attack on the weekend because he was kicked out of his rental home uh, and he's got a, he's got a, a, he was in a rental home to begin with, with his wife, because they've been building a reno, a new home actually, and that's all gone pear-shaped. The building's yeah. gone back. Oh, God, yeah. 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 These things are happening. They happen all the time, but they are just noticing anecdotally, there seems to be more and more people doing it tough. And I don't know whether that's been playing out in the data yet, besides the big falls in consumer confidence. And that's why... We've got to be careful. We can't. I'm not prepared to be completely rosy about 2024 yet until we get some more evidence or information that, okay, the economy is having a soft landing. Yes, there's some people doing it tough, but overall, the economy is doing a little bit better than expected. We're hoping that's how it plays out. Probabilities are pretty good as how it's going to play out, but not ruling out this more darker scenario at this point in time. Yeah, I mean the um the cash buffers of clients is absolutely dwindling, right? We can see that. Um, you know the amount of money they've got in offset accounts and um, you know their net loans. The Reserve banks reported well on that, saying, "Look, there's actually a lot of buffer there. People have their redraw facilities. We've still got positive savings, and that helps." Um, it's it's just that you know there, there seems to be a growing number of people doing it particularly tough, which might explain the big falls in consumer confidence. I think. Too interesting that you know there's been all these sort of talk about the mortgage cliff, um, and yet that hasn't played out as you mentioned as as has been reported, and and perhaps that is how it's playing out that that rather than uh, you know resulting in forced sales and all that sort of stuff, it's more it's actually playing out in the lack of confidence. Yes, that's right because a home is the last thing that ultimately does go in this country. Who wants to sell their home out of distress? Nobody does. No, that's the worst thing. There's a lot of Stigma, a, a, a stigma attached to that, right? Nobody wants to do it. The home goes last, but everything else goes first. The holidays go first. The furniture goes first. 
you know, that the nice restaurants go first. House insurance, <laughs> health insurance, even. <laughs> that, you know, that's what goes first, but that's what also slows the economy down. That's consumer spending retracing back, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, that one of the things stopping people selling, um, one, if they sell, they can never get back in, right? Um, the reality is they might have lost their whole deposit, you know, paid stamp duty, selling costs, you know, the 150 is now 20 grand, right? If, if, my, if But I think that just the sort of support in prices, you know, if, if there's this, the people who have got a fair chunk of equity, um, if they saw prices continue, to, they did, we didn't get that spiraling effect, right? Where if I don't sell now, I could sell it for a lot more less next year um, because there was that resilience in prices. I think that's, you know, one of the things that's, you know, because if prices, any prices fell, you know, 15%, which you said in the last, um, in the 2018 downturn, um, you could see that happening because you're right, listing numbers were increasing through 2018. Um, and um, that that's what I think is really different this, this like 2022. Listing numbers haven't been increasing. Prices haven't been falling. They've actually been going up. That's giving people enough confidence to say, let's just hang on. Let's not list this thing. Um, even if we are doing it tough, it's worth it because the price of our property is going up. Do you think that's playing out a bit? I think I think that's a very fair comment and, and, and very accurate comment in terms of, the feeling out there uh, at this point in time. Yes, 2018, you know, it was it was really driven by investor uh, investors bailing out first. Uh, and of course you remember it was APRA stepping into the market and restricting lending. Remember it well. <laughs> we haven't had APRA step in this time around. They threatened to do so back in 21, but they didn't do it. Uh, they left it to the Reserve Bank to do all the heavy lifting. Well, they did increase the buffer at the very end of the year. They did, but you may recall they were doing a whole bunch of other things in 2018. Mm, yeah, oh, absolutely. A, a whole bunch of things, which they haven't done this time around. Yeah, and we also had the Royal Banking Commission back then too. You know, that sort, of, that sort of added insult to injury. But I think what's sort of interesting as well, even just looking at what prices were doing in 2022, yes, they were falling. Um, you see the interest rate cliff that was sort of well-publicised going to happen basically in June, July of this year. So there's actually, and and interest rates obviously starting to rise from May 2022. So there's there's like a, a disconnect in a way between the interest rates rising and actually the 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 big, uh, I guess, impact of a lot of uh, fixed rates expiring, and in that intervening time, prices started rising again. So I guess you know that's you know if it, if it, all of that had happened earlier, if the fixed rate cliff had happened, you know, perhaps at the end of twenty twenty two, maybe we would have seen a different a different um, I guess play out there. But I've also got a little bit of a theory. I've got a theory that there's a certain type of human being that is more likely to knee-jerk and panic and have a bit more of a short-term view of things and more likely to have sold their, their house in reaction to um to you know this scenario i mean i and I, I speak to that because i think of the people that panicked in the wake the immediate wake of the gfc this is it got to get out and i and i knew and i spoke to people like this you know i knew people that did this and and so there's a certain i guess subset of of the the property owning population that is likely to react in such a way and they'll sort of get out of there quickly and and that sort of part you know they're gone they're not part of the the rest of the population i mean that's my theory so i'm wondering if does that sort of look like in the in the data that potentially that may have played out i i i think potentially that that is indeed that may well play out i'd like to also with the the fixed mortgage resets just point out 
that the rise in fixed mortgage resets actually did start from 2022. It's been a, I, I saw a very wide distribution curve. And if you look closely at the media at the time, and indeed back in 2021, everyone was actually, not everyone, but a lot of people saying, oh, it's going to peak in 2022. So this horizon where it peaks seems to be pushed out and pushed out. Um, and, and, and that's a bit of a sign that perhaps things are not going to be as bad as what is feared in the media. And I'd also would like to point out to people to read, uh, you know, we speak of banks getting it wrong, but when you read their annual reports uh, and their slides where they look in a lot of detail into their lending book, CBA is a very good one uh, where they give a lot of information about what's going on with their lending book. Um, you'll see that the bank itself is not really that concerned about it. Look, they're managing it, but then that 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 they're basically saying it's been well managed at this point in time. It's not looking like a crisis. You mentioned the uh, APRA, and you know it's an interesting conversation if if they are going to step in because there are it's going to be pressure building on them, right? If if rates are on hold for six months and um, inflation's coming back down, should you be really be constraining borrowing capacity and getting people assessed on nine percent plus interest rates? Well, you, you would think, Chris, that uh, the, the risks are a little bit high now with rising interest rates for APRA to step in and contain the risks in the housing market, right? Uh, you'll note that they tend to step in when the market's booming and then take the foot off the gas, off their restricted gas, shall I say, uh, when the market's falling, uh, where they say, oh, the risks have reduced. Well, actually, I would have thought the risks would be high when you've got falling housing prices, right? Because you've got a whole, whole bunch of people falling into negative equity. Uh, so, look, I, I take a view that it's uh, in this current environment, I think it's actually very unlikely upper will step in because the market's not running too hot, nor is it running too cold. Um, and, and they would take the view that the RBA has done all the heavy lifting and we wouldn't want to create further risks of falling housing prices if we were to step in to restrict lending. I mean, the opposite, though, to relax lending. So, APRA come in and say, let's reduce our assessment buffer from 3% to 2%. Let's rela relax lending. Yeah, they could do that. Well, I, I'm more erring on that side with you then, mm. uh, that they could actually yeah, try and ease uh, lending to an extent, have, for example, higher loan-to-value ratios and so forth. Yeah, and reduce the buffer from 3% back. I mean, it was 25 They increased it to 3%, you know, height of 2021 because the, they had to do something to, you know, um, get some more first-home buyer votes, really, because they were very upset. Um, but, I mean, if, it, if they went back to 2% or 25 that's a 10% increase to borrowing capacity if that's, you know, um, when rate cuts are happening. I mean, it defies me. I mean, borrowing capacity is formed by 40%, right? So... But what I think people have done is they've adjusted their budgets, right? So the, the client who would have bought at two mil um, with a $1.6 million loan, for example, now they can probably borrow circa a million, right? And, you know, what's what's been surprising, it's been a trickle-down effect. So they're, they're, You're right, the purchasing power has decreased, but there's more of the client, isn't there? There's more clients out there. Yeah, and they've still they've still... They've still got on with their purchase, right? Because they're going, well, I still have a housing problem I need to solve. I've just changed my solution. And so I think that's been a real big surprise to me that borrowing capacities have fallen 40%, but house prices have gone up. It just it doesn't sound like logical. Um, no, it doesn't. That's right. Yeah. And has that been a big surprise to you, just how resilient the market has been? I know your base case was suggesting that, but if you went back maybe six months before, like at the mid-2022, 
are you really surprised with what's happened over the next 18 months? Because, you know, that was when everyone was still predicting very dire forecasts. It's just maybe you are ahead of the curve, what people are kind of catching up to now. I think at, say, the start of 2021, if you were to tell me that the cash rate was going to hit 4% by 2023, I probably would have been a little bit more bearish at the time. But at that stage, at the at the say the beginning of 2021, uh, I wasn't expecting inflation to pick up the way it did. Uh, and uh, just keep in mind our earlier conversation surrounding the relationship between inflation and housing prices. Uh, and and certainly we weren't anticipating the big rise in rents, though the market was starting to get tight. We just were not expecting rents or advertised rents to jump 20% in a year. Um, so yeah, there's this, um, no, I think on its own, you're right, but we need to consider all these other factors, which offset that negative factor, the huge rise in rents, uh, the corresponding rise in migration or overall population numbers, the overall rise in inflation where people are looking to get that hedge and the situation where therefore, you know, we've been running negative real rates, which still stimulates the economy. Yeah. Uh, no, before you before you get the Dumbo, sorry, just I just wanted to ask quickly about because you've got um your all of your scenarios really show that Sydney and Perth performing stronger than the rest of the country. Do you want to just quick give us yeah. quick insight into why? Yes. So Sydney's got more to do with the fact that uh it's the migration itself. So our overseas arrivals their two first ports of call generally tend to be Sydney and Melbourne. They come to Sydney and Melbourne, and at, over the next 12, 24 to 36 months, they start to fan out a little bit and move to other regions. But they come to Sydney and Melbourne first. Sydney benefit from that. Over and above that, recall the previous state Liberal government started to move towards reducing stamp duty, replacing it with a land tax. Okay. And actually, the benefit for first-time buyers at the end of last year and the start of this year was quite juicy, right? It essentially could have meant up to a saving of $100,000 of stamp duty if they went down the land tax option. We think that certainly generated interest yeah, in the sure. stimulus market in particular. Indeed. Yes, there's no doubt. Uh, now, over in Perth, it's really been commodities-driven, but over and above that, affordability. So let's just keep in mind that between the years 2007 through to about 2017, Perth housing prices went nowhere. They actually backwards um, for a long time. That improved affordability. At the same time, commodity prices have been running pretty strong up until recently, and that always benefits the state economy of Western Australia. That combined with low construction, um, given the fact that we had low demand for that 10-year period, has meant that we quickly had a rental crisis in Perth, um, which saw and still continues to see very strong rises in advertised rents. And therefore, as we've seen with the East Coast, um, basically a move towards buying over renting. Hopefully that explains it. It does. Thank you very yeah, much. Absolutely. Can you finish it with a property Dumbo story? You might not remember. Just a, a little tale hopefully humorous, that we can uh, learn from the mistake of others. But um, any property stories recently? All right, I'm going to give you one that's a little bit different, okay? It's more recent, okay? 
and it's not to do with residential. Can we speak briefly about commercial? Absolutely. All right. Sky signage. I have an office here in North Sydney. I don't know if you know North Sydney well, but we're uh, in this building. It used to be called the Bayer Building. I know the building, yes. Mm -hmm. You know the building, right? Okay, so SBS have just now taken out the sky signage rights, no longer with Bayer. Guess how much SBS are now paying for this sky signage a year? <laughs> Can't even 30? try. No? $800,000 a year. Well, that sounds cheap. It does sound cheap. That's not, that's not cheap. <laughs> I think that's the most expensive sky signage in Australia, $800,000 a year. And we're talking about a semi-government body. Where are they getting this money from again? Is it, could that be taxpayers what running? Is it, by what chance? is a classic? Is it Chris and I are clearly not experts in si si uh, <laughs> sky signage, which is precisely why you should always work with an expert when you're going to buy something as expensive as or spend $800,000 on something. <laughs> Consult it with us and we go, yeah, that seems reasonable. Um, right, so what was Bayer paying? Well, we know that they were paying that, so – and. Uh, I can't I can't talk about too many inside secrets, but I know SBS are paying at least that. I, I um, think on that building though, isn't it like a bit of a off to the side? Like it's on it's, the left hand it's side. Off to the yeah. side. That's right. It's on the other side of the uh Riga Freeway. There's no competing signs, no competing buildings. Exactly. Your brain goes to, you know, all these, you know, and there's a lot of developments happening in North Sydney, right? It's it's oh, a, you get you get the best views in this building. I'll just flip the camera around. So I get to see the housing market there pretty uh -oh. well. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, that's, a, that's your top-down view, not your bottom-up view. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but, Louie, that's a great little um, dumbo for us and a great episode, to be honest. I really enjoyed that. I think mm. there's lots of um, – and lots of things I haven't really thought about. The nominal GDP mm. was a really interesting one because – Oh, you've got to follow nominal. You can get that from the ABS. And if you run that against uh, the CoreLogic's housing price series or the ABS's – Housing price series, you'll see a strong relationship. Interesting. Mm, very interesting. Thanks so much, Louis. We'd love to get you on if you don't mind. Um, hopefully not three and a half years' time, but um, maybe around your next year's forecast. That would be um, amazing. I'll try to do that. It's, uh, we've, uh, I'm, I'm very lucky. SQN research has grown a lot these days, and I'm a little bit more operational these days, so it's, it's hard for me to do as much media as what I used to. But uh, it's been really good to do this with you guys and your audience today. Well, we appreciate, appreciate it. it Thank you. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.